Love you, Jesus. Ha. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in this room already, Lord, and we thank you for what you're going to do as we continue our time together. Lord, as we open the Bible, I pray that you'd speak to us significantly. Lord, I pray that this will be a day that, that a handful of us marked down in our calendar, December 18th, 2016. God spoke something that changed me forever. Lord, if we're going to be here, Lord, we might as well believe that you're going to move something in Jesus' name. And if you have some faith for this morning, I want you to say amen. Amen, 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 amen. Go ahead and uh, grab a seat. Hallelujah. Amen. You guys encouraged? Amen. Yes. Great job, worship team. Wow. You guys thankful for this team? Yeah. I am. Amen, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Wow. We're spoiled with this team. They're really good at doing music. That's for sure. That is for sure. Pull out your Bibles if you got them this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give one to you. So go ahead and just raise your hand, and somebody will bring one to you. Um, if you're the only one, raise your hand. Don't feel bad about it. It's cool to get a Bible. Everybody loves free stuff, right? Am I right? Yes. All right. There's not a lot of us, so we can be family, right? We're just going to hang out together, have a good time, believe for God to speak this morning. Glad that you're here at church this morning with us. We're going to be I'm in John chapter 2 as you pull out your Bible this morning. And I was thinking this morning, I think it's worth being said that my wife is amazing. Just thought y'all should know. She's a great wife and a great mama. Somebody say amen. 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 She's awesome. <laughs> John chapter 2, open up your Bible. We're going to do a brief recap this morning, if you uh, have not been with us, or maybe you have been and you forget, or just would like a refresher of what we've been doing in church, we are coming to the very back end. Uh, Saturday night is going to be our last sermon in the series, What's the Big Deal About Jesus? And we have been engaging this question, what's the big deal about Jesus? Because whether maybe you're conscious of it or not, this is a question that you have engaged in your life before. Maybe you're engaging it right now. And I'm assuming that at some point you've probably had a conversation along these lines with somebody in your life asking the question, what's the big deal about Jesus? Maybe, maybe uh, that person or you believe in Jesus. Maybe that person or you do not believe in Jesus. And there's a question, what's the big deal about Jesus? Christians make a big deal about him all the time. But uh, he lived and he existed but a lot of people have lived and existed. So what's the big deal about Jesus? And we have uh, done a bunch of sermons on it, and we've been hitting on a few different things. So I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast if you've missed some of it. But brief recap, these two main points. I'm going to need some help from you because I hope that some of you remember. The first one is Jesus is a big deal because of who he is. Good job. See, I told you my wife's amazing. She's on point. She's teaching you all how to, how to respond. That's good. Jesus is a big deal because of who he is. He is God. And that is a big deal. That's significant. If you don't know what to make of Jesus, you need to decide if, he, if who he is is a big deal. Either he was somebody who lived and died, and that's great, or he's somebody who lived and died and rose again. And that is significant. Jesus is a big deal because of who he is. He is God. You need to make a decision about where you land on that. Number one, he's a big deal because of who he is. Number two, he's a big deal because when you know who Jesus is, you learn who you are. You learn who you are. When you know that Jesus is God, you learn that you are his. And that is significant. We've been hitting on these things every week, different truths about who God is and different truths about if that's who God is, then who does that make you? And those are significant 
significant things in this series that we've been talking about together. So we're going to continue talking about what's the big deal about Jesus. And um, I'm pretty much going to give away the punchline of this sermon right in the title. And the bottom line is Jesus is a big deal because he is what you need. So you can put that at the top of your notes. Jesus is what I need. That's what's the big deal. We're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning talking about this. So we're going to dive in. i got a lot to cover. We're going to do um, a lot of background this morning. We're going to go old-fashioned, good old-fashioned Bible study mode for a little while. So I hope you're ready to learn about a few things. And uh, we're going to believe for God to, God to speak. Anybody ready to hear from God? Yeah. Good deal. Okay, we're going to be in John chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And just to, whoa, my Bible's falling apart. Oops. Just to preface this, I have a big question about this story. Why on earth did it make it into the Bible? I don't understand. I don't know if you do, but we're going to dive into it. John chapter 2, we're going to engage that question. So, number 2, as far as chapters go, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding and with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Somebody say, To the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Somebody say, So they took it. Side note, when Jesus says do it, just do it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Say, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Makes sense to me. Once you forget what it tastes like, just give them water. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at, Cain, at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Like I said at the beginning, I wonder why did this random story make it into the Bible? Okay, Jesus goes to a party, he turns some water into wine, and it says at the end he, that was like the manifestation of his glory. Like that's a big statement. For a party favor. I mean, goodness. And then it says, okay, and, and his disciples believed in him. I'm like, okay, really, you know, of, of all things, like the water and the wine, that's what really did it for you. What, what's going on there? And as I, was, as I was praying this week, Lord, what, do, what are you saying for us as a church? Really, I believe God was pointing us here to John chapter 2. And I was reading this story, and, and like I said, I just, I just couldn't shake this question. Like, I don't understand why this story made it. I mean, of all of the things that Jesus did in his life. All the things that didn't get written down. Water into wine. Like, manifested his glory. What is going on? That doesn't make any sense to me. How did this make it in? And I asked Heather, I was like, hey, babe, I think I'm going to preach on uh, the water into wine story, and I just can't quite really figure out why it's actually made it into the Bible. And she was like, I read it two days ago, and I thought that same thing. And I was like, yeah, you should get more spiritual and get revelation like me out of it or something. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I didn't say that. And so we were, we were wrestling it. You can laugh at that. I don't talk to my wife like that. It's okay. And then we made out, and it was okay. So, wait, what? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I just said that. Oops. Anyways, water into wine. Why is this story in the Bible, right? I think that people have been wondering this question for a long time. Maybe, maybe you've thought about this question. Maybe you haven't. But, I mean, how many of you have heard this story referenced at a wedding? 
One. I have. That makes two of us. Three. There we go. Okay, cool. I've heard this story at weddings. It's like, this proves that Jesus loves marriage. I'm like, okay, what does that prove that he doesn't like water? But he only likes wine? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, that's the best that I've heard of, like, yeah, Jesus loves marriage. I mean, clearly he loves, he loves marriage and he loves the party, which I think both things are true. But I'm wondering, if there, is there maybe something more to this whole water into wine story? So, like I said, I knew God was trying to speak something, but I'm like, surely you're not a big deal because you do party tricks. There's got to be more to this story. There's got to be more to the story. Why are we reading this story? So, like I said, we're going to go old-fashioned Bible study mode for just a second as we dig into this question because most of the time, if you read something in the Bible and you're like, why is that there? Ah, there's probably a mistake. It probably wasn't a mistake. It's probably good to ask some questions, engage those questions, and try to see if God might say something to you in the good old-fashioned Bible study. All right? So we're going to think a little bit about this story. You guys ready to think with me for just a little while? Good deal. Oh, you're... <laughs> I thought Mark was pointing back there. Mark Frazee, ladies and gentlemen, he grabs my attention. He's a man of God. Amen. Love you. John, John chapter 2. Okay, so let's think about this. John chapter 2, what's going on here? It's in the book of John, which, okay, so that book was written by John if it's named after John, right? Well, not necessarily, but after a little bit of research, the general consensus is, yes, John wrote the book of John, hence the name John. So that's good. John, who is John? So if John wrote this book, who is this John guy? Well, John was one of the apostles, so this is Apostle John. That's a cool title for John. It means something significant. So who is Apostle John? Well, John was one of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples. So when you read the Bible, it talks about the disciples. Most of the time, John would have been around there. So as one of the 12 disciples, John is one of the guys who would have been most familiar with Jesus. He was there for the bulk of Jesus' ministry. He saw him do a lot of different things. John saw him as, as one of the apostles. John saw Jesus die. John saw Jesus resurrected. So John's a big deal. John, John's got an interesting perspective. Not only was he one of the 12, but the Bible talks uh, pretty frequently, especially through the Gospels, about uh, specifically Peter, James, and John. So John, that's the same John. Peter, James, and John were three of the 12 disciples, and uh, they were kind of the inner circle of Jesus. So not only did they see things specific and hear things specific to what the apostles would have been led in on by Jesus as one of his close friends, but as one of the three, he had even more specific encounters, more specific experiences with Jesus. Not only was he one of the three, but maybe this is audacious, maybe it isn't, but frequently in his own book, he refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And there's a lot of evidence, a lot of scholars kind of, uh, what's that word? Think. I don't know. That's not the word I'm looking for. But they think, you know, that John would have been the closest out of all the disciples. So this is like not just Apostle John. He's got a cool title and wears a suit to church. Like this is Jesus' best friend who wrote this story. Very interesting when you start thinking about it that way. Okay, this is Jesus' dearest friend. Not only was he one of the 12, one of the three, and not only was he Jesus' closest friend, but is one of Jesus' last Acts before he died on the cross was he was hanging on the cross, bleeding, dying, gasping for breath. So very limited air to speak. And God is, Jesus is choosing his words wisely. And he sees John next to his mom, next to Jesus's mom, Mary, watching and witnessing the resurrection. And he takes breath that is so precious to him to say, hey, John, this is your mother. Mom, this is now your son. Powerful, powerful moment. John is not just any old John. 
Like this is in John Smith. The apostle John, he's got some experience with Jesus. So he is one of Jesus' very best friends. He is the caretaker for Jesus' mother. And I'm not saying that this book would have been co-authored by Mary, Jesus' mother, but what I think is fair to assume and consider when thinking about the background of this text is that from the, the years and decades past Jesus' death and his resurrection, throughout the, the birth and the explosion of the early church, I think it's fair to assume that John and Mary would have had a lot of discussions between themselves or a lot of story times a lot like this with early church Christians talking about Jesus, telling them about who he was, what he was like. And as people who had maybe two of the most unique perspectives on Jesus' life, I'm sure they talked a lot. What was your favorite story about Jesus? What's some of the stuff you remember the most? I'm sure that they heard each other share at conferences all the time. They probably would have known who each other's, what each other's favorite story was. And I'm sure that when John went to write down this book, I'm sure that whether or not Mary was alive, I'm sure that her favorite stories and her perspective may have had some influence on what was included into the book of John. So making sense to everybody. So this is who wrote the book is John, his best friend and caretaker of his mother. So we know who wrote it, but why? Why did he write it? Well, like the rest of the, the New Testament, the book of John wasn't written with this idea that it was going to be sent off to a publisher bound together in a 66-part book and published in this thing called the Bible. That wasn't the original intention. He didn't know that that was what was going to happen. So this is written way more as a letter, which I think is just interesting to consider because, you know, we've got our American 2016 mindset, right? We understand the Bible, but the Bible didn't even exist when John wrote this, and it wasn't even the idea. So he, he didn't write this as an effort to get published. It was written as a testimony to the early church. So John would have wrote, written this down at a time when the church is exploding all around the world, and everybody everywhere is asking this question. We've heard about this Jesus, but what's the big deal about Jesus? So John sits down as one of his best friends and the caretaker of his mother and says, I want to tell you a few things about why Jesus is such a big deal. Is this clicking? Is making sense with people? All right. So it was a letter more than an effort at a, at a published article. And, and we've also got to consider that the Bible and this book, the book of John, it wasn't written, you know, as, as an effort. It wasn't, it wasn't written as like a historical text. Like people need a history lesson or, or it wasn't even written so that he could get published as a great theologian. It wasn't like people need a good theology lesson. No, people are wondering, what is the big deal about Jesus? And he had a perspective and was inspired by God to write down some things to explain to us. What's the big deal about Jesus? So that's, that's why John, John wrote it. And the last little detail that's really important is that John was writing it to a Jewish audience. So John was a Jew and would have had the same, same background. So he knows and he understands the questions that these people are asking. He knows that his people have been waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah to come. They've been promised this Messiah for generations and hundreds and thousands of years, and they're waiting for their Messiah. And John understands their cultures, he understands their customs, he understands their questions, and he's trying to explain to them, Jesus is everything that you need. I know who you're looking for, and Jesus is who you're looking for. Amen? All right. So the question that these Jews are asking is, yes, we know that Jesus lived. We know he caused some cultural waves in the wake of his ministry. 
But he claimed to be the Messiah. That sounds outrageous. Everybody's making a big deal. It's probably a few decades after Jesus' resurrection. The message is still sticking around. People are still preaching Jesus. People are still doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And they're like, I thought we killed this guy, but apparently he's a big deal. So what's the big deal about Jesus? So this is the backdrop of the book of John, that he is writing as a dear friend of Jesus, and he is writing as a dear friend of the people that he's writing to. This is a labor of love, a labor of brotherly, broken-hearted love for his best friend, who he watched killed and celebrated his resurrection and watched him ascend. It's an act of love on behalf of his friend. But it's also an act of brotherly and heartbroken love for his people. He says, I know who you're hoping for, and it's breaking my heart that you don't know that it's him. It's a labor of love, this book of John, and that's the backdrop that we pick up the story of John chapter 2. John is recording this collection of events from Jesus' life for one purpose only, to say Jesus lived a life with blaring signs that he is everything that you need. I want you to see him. So John 2 apparently is not a random story about a party trick necessarily, but somewhere in here there's a blaring sign that John is trying to get across that this is the Messiah, this is Jesus. Amen? You guys ready to dig into it now? Awesome. I, I didn't lose anybody. All right. John chapter 2. We're going to look in a few different chunks here. We're going to read the first few verses together through verse 5. So look at your Bible again or look at the screens. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Verses 3 through 5, it's me, Mary, and Jesus have a really interesting, kind of intriguing interaction here. And there's been a lot of speculation. If you've been in church before, or maybe in a wedding, or if you've heard any preaching on this, there's a lot of speculation about what kind of attitude is going on in this interaction. Because if you look at it at face value, it seems a little interesting. Mary comes to Jesus, she says they have no wine. And Mary seems to be a little bit more concerned with the wine than the Messiah's mom ought to be, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so what's going on? And it looks like Jesus turns to her and kind of gives her like this verbal backhand. It's like, woman, so what? I'm chilling at my wedding with my friends. Leave me alone. And then it looks like Mary's like, whatever. And she walks away, mumbling to her, just do whatever he says. And you're like, Wow. Jesus and Mary having a rough mother-son day. That's what it seems like is happening. But let's be real, that makes no sense whatsoever. Surely that's not what's going on here. That, that doesn't make sense. Because even if that was how the interaction went, it still doesn't make sense what happens next. Because it looks like she says, they have no wine. He says, I'm not going to do anything about it. And she says, oh, yes, you are. I am your mother. So apparently Jesus is like, I'm not going to do it. But then mom pulls that like manipulative mom thing and pulls a fast one on God and puts him in a position where he just has to do something. And it's because we know Jesus turns the water into wine, right? So what's going on here? None of this is lining up. Is anybody else seeing these questions? It's just not quite making sense. So what's, what's going on here? 
So let's talk about this interaction. First of all, I think this needs to be said, that the word woman translated here in this interaction is actually a respectful word that Jesus says to his mother. It just kind of gets lost in translation for us English people. To us, it's like, woman? That's like what you don't say ever. We're like, dang, Jesus. But he, he's not saying that. He's like not being a punk to his mom. So don't be a punk to your mom. Amen? Awesome. All right, move on. Here we go. So Jesus is not being a punk. So when you consider the context of this interaction, like, like we've been talking about, we've been setting the stage for this interaction with this Bible study that we've been doing together. When you consider the context that we've been talking about, you get a different sense of what's going on in this interaction. Because you've got to understand, it's Jesus' best friend, and he's writing for one purpose. He's writing to tell people who Jesus is. That's interesting. On some level, his choice to include this story was probably influenced by Mary, who is included in the story. She probably had an interesting perspective on a lot of these things. So there's a few different things going on. And in John chapter 1, if you look at John chapter 1, John starts the book with just a, a theological swing for the fences when he says, Jesus was the word in the beginning. He basically comes out to his audience to say, no bones about it, Jesus is God. As we get started, just want to make sure we're all on the same page. That's John chapter 1. John chapter 3 has a verse you've probably heard of, John three sixteen. John 1, he is God. John 3, he is the Savior of the world. So in John 2, who is Jesus? This isn't just, what did Jesus do? This is an answer to the question, who is Jesus? What is, such, what is the big deal about Jesus? So Mary steps in. She says this comment to Jesus. They have no wine. Again, as we consider what's going on here, we've got to remember this is Jesus' mom talking. And since it's mom talking, that opens this situation up to unlimited layers. Can I get an Amen. How many of you know when mama says something, she's usually not just saying what she said? Anybody know what I'm talking about? For example, I'm not saying this happened with my, my mom who's sitting in this room right now, but let's say you were to show up to your mom's house quicker than she thought. And she says, oh, wow, you got here fast. She's saying, oh, wow, you got here fast. You better not have been speeding in this weather with my grandbabies in your car. Can I get an amen? Amen. Just saying. Just saying. When mom says something, she's usually saying something. Amen. So this is mom talking. There's a lot of layers potentially going on. And, uh, you know, like, the same, just the same thing. She's a significant woman in his life, and we all know significant women in your life say a lot more than what they're just saying. So that's what we have to consider here. Because when the significant woman in your life says something that seems random and out of place and out of context, like, they have no wine, and you're like, Messiah's mom, why are you so concerned about the wine? You've known because you experience this whenever a significant woman says something like that that is random and out of place, it is usually shocking on topic, what she's actually saying, right? If you dig into it, you're like, oh, I missed that. You were saying, oh, I get it now. That is what happens to me, and it's too late. Can I, amen, amen, amen. It is too late at that point. So significant women in a life have a way of putting remarkably well-placed random comments just right where they ought to be, right? So this is mom talking. So John and Mary, John and Mary are extremely close to talking about this story. And I'm sure that when it came to favorite story time, Jesus, or Mary would have brought up this story. Remember that time I told Jesus they had no wine? It was kind of confusing to everybody else listening. I was pulling a mom move in that one. 
because they're extremely close. They've, they've talked about this, and um, I think Mary probably would have loved it for a few reasons. She's kind of pulling a mom move, but not only that. I mean, if she's mom, moms remember the first everything, right? She would have remembered, oh, my gosh, I remembered when Jesus, the first time that he walked. I remember Jesus. I remember the first time he spoke. I remember the first time Jesus smiled. Oh, yeah, I remember Jesus' first miracle, right? This is a moment for mom in this story. So my question is, what's Mary doing here? What, what is she really saying when she says, hey, Jesus, they have no wine? What if Mary knows that uh, she's not just coming to Jesus for what he can do? What if Mary knows she's coming to Jesus because she needs who he is? That's what this book is about anyways, right? Not just about what he did, but who he is. So they have no Wine. If we want to understand what Mary might just possibly be saying here, we've got to talk about the wine for a second. Because when we think about wine in our 2016 perspective, wine at a wedding, the question is, do you have an open bar or not? End of story. That's kind of the wedding question about wine. But, but in Jewish culture, the wine was significant. It wasn't just a, 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 a passing question, do we have an open bar or not? The wine meant a lot to the Jewish people. And it meant a lot at a Jewish wedding. So what's, what's going on here with the wine? Because this wine, it, it wasn't about the alcohol. It was about the symbolism. That's why this is a big deal. Because, like I said, in, in their culture, this was, a, this was a huge deal for the Jews to have, have this wine. So what is the significance of the wine? Well, a few different things. In Jewish culture, wine symbolizes joy and gladness. Because, you know, you can take that as far as you want. If you drink too much wine, there's... You know, seems to be some joy and gladness, but it's a symbol here. It symbolizes joy and gladness. So to run out of wedding, to run out of wine at a wedding was a massive social faux pas. To be like, yeah, we didn't really anticipate that much joy or that much gladness coming out of this marriage, anyways. So this is a big deal that the wine has run out. Not only did it symbolize joy and gladness, but it was a sign of covenant. It was a sign of covenant. So um, this stuff is interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to you. In Jewish culture, when, it, when a guy was going to propose to a girl, he didn't just offer her a ring, but he, he would sit down with her across the table, and her dad would be there, and he would offer her a glass of wine. And it was, that was the extension of his hand in marriage, saying, will you drink of this cup and be in covenant with me? And if she drank the wine, he would go off, and he would build a house for them, and then when his, when his dad signed off on the house, he would come back. They would have a wedding ceremony, and as part of the ceremony, again, they would share another glass of wine. The beginning of proposal, it was part of the consummation of the covenant. And then, of course, at the reception, it was part of the celebration. They celebrated the covenant with joy and gladness. This stuff is cool, isn't it? I'm like, why don't we have stuff like this? It's like Bud Light or Coors Light. It's like, come on, that got lame. We, lo we got lame on this side of the ocean. I don't know. So it, signed, it signifies joy and gladness, it signifies covenant, and it signifies Sabbath. It signifies Sabbath, it signifies rest. And the Jewish law set up by God, they would work for six days and then they would rest on the seventh day from their work. The cool thing about Sabbath, I love this, is that Sabbath wasn't just about nap time. Exodus 31, 13 uh, says this, we're going to put it up on the screens here in a second. It says, uh, this is God speaking to Moses, establishing the law to say, you will keep the Sabbath. He says, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, it's a big statement, 
Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Why? For this is a sign between me, God, and you, my people, throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. This is why the Sabbath was a big deal. It wasn't just take a nap. It was every week. I want you to remember that when you can't do a thing, I sanctify you. I want you to rest from everything you're trying to earn. I want you to rest in everything I provide. It signifies Sabbath. One signifies Sabbath at the beginning of their Sabbath day. At the beginning of of the night before the Sabbath, they would have a glass of wine. And it it signified sanctification to say we're we're entering into a day where we cannot work and God still loves us and makes us pure. Amen. At the end of the day, they would have another glass that signified separation. And say, as as those who have been sanctified, we now enter into our work as those separate from the things of the world, separate from the things that try to come against us, separate from the things that defile us. We are sanctified and we are separate by the Sabbath. This is cool, huh? So the wine is significant. Last thing. Throughout the Bible, wine, this isn't just specific to Jewish culture, but now in the Bible, wine, when it's used a lot of times, is a symbol of the presence of God, the blessing of God, the Holy Spirit. God, uh, God, God relates wine to the Holy Spirit a lot, and, and that makes sense. You know, what's some of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good. You know, it's like, okay, so that makes sense. And the, the wine symbolizes the presence of of God, the blessing of God, the joy, the gladness, the covenant, the Sabbath of God. Are we doing okay? All right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna keep moving on here. So that's the wine. So Jesus is at a wedding, and his mom says to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. When I consider the context of what's going on in this story, I wonder if, if Mary may not be speaking to Jesus as her son, but if she's speaking to Jesus as God's son. I wonder if that's how she's coming to him in this moment. I don't believe that this is a moment where Mary's glass was empty and she knew Jesus could fill it up for her. I think that when Mary said they have no wine, this was an incredibly prophetic moment. This is an incredibly prophetic moment where where Mary stepped in front of God on the people's behalf in intercession. She stood before God in the flesh and in a moment of supernatural perception and understanding considered the context of what was missing and who was in the room. When Mary was asking Jesus is not for a party favor, she's asking for a messianic announcement. They have no wine. Jesus, son of the living God. The people have no wine. She remembers the angel telling her that she would birth, though she was a virgin. She remembers the wise men and the shepherds. She remembers the first time that he walked, the first time that he talked, that she'd been holding so dear to her. And I think for one last time, Mary steps in front of Jesus and engages this unique tension that only Mary would understand as both the mother of Jesus and the daughter that he came to save, as both the one who called out who Jesus was for his whole life and the one who now needed who Jesus was. She engages this tension in a moment of intercession and tells them, Jesus, they have no wine. They have no wine. Look at your people. They have nothing. They have nothing. It's not just about the party guests anymore. It's not just about the Jews anymore. This is about humanity 
when she's saying they have no wine. Humanity is without wine. They are without joy. They have no gladness. They have no covenant. They have no covering. Look at humanity. It's like a bride left at the altar. They have no wine. They have no boundaries. They have no rest. Look, your people, they have feasted on everything the world has to offer. And they have nothing left. Everything's run out. Humanity is broke. She didn't come to just give Jesus some information. She came to give intercession for humanity. Jesus, she's saying, the people, the nation, all of human beings, the souls, Jesus, look at the souls, Jesus. They have no wine. She's putting identity on him when she needs him the most, like only a mom can do. Jesus, they have no wine, and you, son, can give them what they need. It's fascinating to me. They have no wine. Do you have wine this morning? Let's keep reading what happens next. We doing good? All right. Finish the rest of the story. Now, there were six stone water jars. Oh, uh, Chad, you can go ahead and bring those up. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this crazy thing that Jesus did, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believe in him. What does Jesus do next? Now we understand the wine. Now what is going on in verses 6 through 11 here? Well, we understand the significance of the wine, so now let's understand the details of the situation that follows. Jesus looks around and after being told, son, there is there is no wine. And so Jesus knows what's going on. It's now you understand the context. It's like um, J- Jesus and Mary are having this bigger conversation that nobody else is understanding. I think everybody else is not connecting the dots that it's like only they know. So he knows what she's trying to say. So they have no wine. Okay, so it's time to give my people wine. It's time to provide the first of the miracles and make a messianic announcement. What, how am I going to make this happen? Jesus looks around and he sees uh, six stone jars. These aren't stone, but they will do, right? Can these work? All right, you can imagine them if they were stone. These hold 20 gallons. It says that the stone jars held between 20 and 30 gallons. The 20-gallon ones were smaller, so I bought those. Easier to handle. It's a lot of wine. So Jesus looks around. He sees these six stone jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons, and he tells the servants, I want you to go fill them up. And if we're going to fill them up, you got to remember this is ancient Israel. They didn't just go get the hose and stand here with the hose and fill these up, right? I think when you read it, it happens in like half a sentence, and you're like, oh, empty jars. Now they're full. Let's move on. But you got to understand, this would have taken some time. They would have had to take maybe like a three or a four or a five-gallon bucket somewhere, a stream, a well, something, Gone and filled it up one at a time. I mean, this would have taken some time. I'm talking at least, I mean, I would guess a good like 20, 30 minutes to fill these up. So 
Mary's making this statement. I wonder what everybody who's watching, they're probably just standing around like, what is he doing? I wonder if Jesus said anything else or if he just sat there while everyone's staring at him. It's like, they have no wine. Fill up the water jars. It's like 30 minutes later. Nobody said anything. We still have no wine. What's going on here? It would have taken some time to fill up these water jars. So while they were getting to work, filling up these jars, Jesus is getting ready to make an announcement to his people. Let's talk about these jars for a second if we're going to understand what's going on here. First of all, it says what about them? It says six stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. So that means that these six stone jars that they had on hand, they would have been using throughout the whole feast for cleansing. And it wasn't just, oh, the dishes are dirty, let's clean them. They were used for cleaning hands and feet and dishes as well. But it wasn't just about cleaning off the old food or cleaning off the dirt from your feet. It says they were for the Jewish rites of purification. So these would have been ceremonially cleaned by some laws. These would have been uh, ceremonially filled with some water that made sense to have them in there. And people probably would have taken the dishes not just to clean them. It wasn't just about physically cleaning them. It was about making them spiritually clean. So these jars represent to the people, this is what you're using to make your dishes, your feet, your hands spiritually clean. I want you to fill them with water and fill them up to the brim. So these six, Jew, or these six stone jars for the rites of Jewish purification, that's interesting to me. What also is interesting is that there's six of them. All through the Bible, the number six has very deep and prophetic significance. Number six represents man, represents brokenness represents shortcoming. Six stone jars for the rites of Jewish purification. Think about it. Jesus, the Messiah, is saying, I want you to fill them up to the brim. So take some time, and it would take some work. Jesus takes your six stone jars of this Jewish rites of purification, and he fills them to the brim. People have no wine, so Jesus says, I want you to grab your religious jars, I want you to fill them up to the brim, and now, they still have no wine, they just have six jars full of water. And it would have probably been really nasty water, they've been using it to wash feet and hands and dishes for probably a few days. Gross. So now what? They've got six jars full of water, that's great. But what does Jesus do? This is fascinating. Six is the number of man, but seven is the number of completion. Six days of creation and God rested on the seventh. Six days of work and you take a Sabbath on the seventh. And after a party that couldn't satisfy, and after six religious jars that couldn't sanctify, Jesus takes the seventh cup. And he draws out wine. And he draws out the wine that they need. With the seventh glass, after a party that couldn't satisfy, after jars that couldn't sanctify, Jesus draws wine that only he can supply. Jesus draws wine that only he can supply. The symbolism is blaring, is it not? Ha, this is amazing. Starting to understand why this story made it into the Bible. This isn't a party trick. It's a messianic announcement. 
with this glass of water turned into wine, Jesus is announcing, not just to the party guests, not just to his mom, but to all of humanity. You've had everything the world has to offer. You have worked hard to fill your jars with everything that you can do and all your great hard work and you're religious, but you have no wine. Are you thirsty? Are you tired? Are you broken? Are you dirty? Are you wondering what can make you clean? Are you wanting to separate from everything that hurts you? Are you wanting to be sanctified from everything that has defiled you? Are you looking for joy? Are you looking for gladness? Come to me, all who are thirsty, and drink. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. With a glass of wine. Why is this story in the Bible? It's really simple. Mary knew the guests had no wine, and John knew the people had no wine, and they needed Jesus. And you have no wine, and you need Jesus. He is what you need. Make one last question. As we wrap up this morning, if Jesus is the one that I need, if Jesus is the only one who can supply the wine, how, how do I get it? It's the right question. It's the right question. The good news is in this story, we go back to the original interaction with mom because how many of you know mamas know best? Mamas know, how, now mamas know best. And Mary knew best how to get the wine that only Jesus could provide. So what did Mary do? And maybe we can do what she did, and walk away with the wine that Jesus can provide. Number one, if you want the wine that only Jesus can supply, number one, come to Jesus. That's what she did. She didn't go talk about it with all of her friends. She didn't go read a book on how to plant a vineyard and get some more wine. She went to Jesus. Not because of what he could do, but because of who he is. Amen? You got to come to Jesus. You got to bring Bring your marriage to Jesus. You've been filling it up with everything you can do, and it's still not working. You bring your finances to Jesus. You've been working hard, and you got the savings accounts, but, man, I'm still just stressed out. I mean, you need to bring your habits to Jesus, the ones you can't break, the ones you can't get into order. I, I can't stop doing this, and I can't seem to wake up in the morning. I mean, it's filled to the brim with my effort, but, I mean, goodness, I just... It's just not working. You need to bring what you can do to Jesus. You need to bring what you can't do to Jesus. You need to bring who you are and who you aren't to Jesus. You need to let him touch you like only he can do. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and confess, Lord, I have had everything the world has to offer I have filled my life to the brim of even the stuff I should do and a lot of stuff I shouldn't do, and I still have no wine. So I'm coming to you. Number one, you got to come to Jesus. Number two, Mary still knows best. Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> Don't just put into practice some principles that you learn in a self-help Christian book. We can't just work out some financial principles, some marriage principles. We can't pick from the Bible what we do like and just kind of forget the stuff that we don't like. We can't just 
measure what God says against my preferences and against my feelings and against my emotions and against what I really wanted him to say and against the timing that I thought he was going to say it in. Come on, somebody. Come on. It's all right. We're all in this together. We got to do whatever he says. And I think it's time for us Christians to realize that he's the only one with the wine, but there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to it. Some of us are like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, um, let's bring that jar and that jar, but these three jars like this, and we'll just hide these over here. Pretend like there's no issue with that one. You got to come to Jesus, and you got to do whatever he says. When he says go, you go. When he says come, you come. When he says sit, you sit, and stay, you stay, and give, you give, and serve, you serve, and love, you love. He says, have mercy, you have mercy. When he says, be patient, you have patience. When he says, I will provide, he will provide. We got to do whatever he says. You want the wine? Come to Jesus and do whatever he says. It's pretty simple. Maybe not be the most practical thing in the world, but it works. But it works. It's not formulaic, but it works. They have no wine. You have no wine. But Jesus is a big deal because he's what you need. And when you know that Jesus is what you need, you learn you're going to be okay. I'm going to wrap up this morning. Why don't you go ahead and stand. We're going to worship one more time together. Excuse all the motion that's about to happen behind me as we wrap up. We're going to pray together and uh, I'm going to have just a few people standing over here that are available to pray with you we do this every week and this might be really new for you this whole like having people pray for me deal it's like I don't want to go over there because I'm only a little bit of a mess like not a lot of a mess and people see me walking over there they're going to think I'm a big mess but I'm just a little mess like don't get lost in that just get what you need come to Jesus do whatever he says all right amen (laughs) so if you need to come to Jesus for some bucket in your life, if you need to come to Jesus to leave some party in your life that's not satisfying you anyways, I want you to come to Jesus this morning. Whether that's lifting your hands in worship, whether that's having somebody pray for you, let's come to Jesus. And let's come expecting God to speak. Mary was so sure God was going to move, she just walked away. Come on, somebody. Somebody's got a problem that you've been sticking around too far to see what's going to happen. It's time to just leave it and let Jesus deal with what only Jesus can deal with. That was for somebody in here. Wasn't planning on saying that, but there's some problems that you just got to walk away from and say, you know what, I need you to do whatever Jesus said to do because I got to get moving into the stuff he told me to do. Amen? We got to get unshackled from the jars that are trying, we're trying to clean ourselves and it's not working anyways. It's all dirty water. We got to walk away from the parties because it's all going to run out. If it hadn't run out yet, you're going to wake up one of these days and realize you got no wine, but come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, and everything he says to do that's going to be scary, just do it. Everything he says to you about who you are, you're not going to believe it, but just believe it. We've got to be people who come and do whatever he says he's going to do. We've got to believe everything that he says to believe. He says, I love you. You've got to believe in love. So bring your insecurity, bring your pain, bring your trials, bring your troubles, bring your jars and your parties this morning. Yes, come to Jesus. Lord, we love you. 
We celebrate you for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you are everything that we need. Lord, would you come? Would you satisfy us like only you can satisfy us this morning? We invite you, Holy Spirit, in this little room with a few people in a basement. God, would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you do a mighty work, Lord? And we are thirsty. We are thirsty for only what you can provide. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.